Now there are vaccines being developed for pancreatic cancer and other types of cancers. I think that to me is very exciting and, and may set up the idea that for certain cancers, we may even be able to just take a vaccine and prevent it from happening as well. Welcome to the Innovatively Speaking podcast, a podcast brought to you by the Medical University of South Carolina. In each episode, we dive into the origins of the next big things, the who, the why, the how. We explore ideas that are changing what's possible here at the Medical University of South Carolina, and in some cases, all across the world. My name is Kevin Smith, and I'm here in the MUSC podcast studio with my co-host, the Chief Innovation Officer here at MUSC, Dr. Jesse Goodwin. Good morning, Kevin. Good morning to you. All right, now, Jesse, cancer is never uh, a fun subject to talk about, but innovative prevention measures, now that's that's exciting. That's something we can get behind. It is exciting. Cancer touches everyone. I don't know anyone who doesn't, uh, who hasn't been touched by cancer in right. some way, shape, or form. So I think anything uh, that we're doing and any conversation we can have about how we can prevent it um, or new treatment methods is always exciting. Well, our guest today is Dr. Ray Du Bois, and he is head over Hollings Cancer Center, correct? That's correct. Tell me about why he's a good guest for us today. I met Ray when he first joined MUSC um, back in the mid, uh, maybe around 2016, I think, um, as the dean of the College of Medicine um, at the time. And um, he's been a fantastic colleague and friend over uh, the last several years. He's a big supporter of innovation, um, has got a lot of exciting work going on in his own lab, but also promotes it really strongly amongst his faculty and those that he serves. So today's going to be a really good discussion. Excellent. I'm excited. Let's dive in. Dr. Ray Du Bois, good morning. Welcome to the Innovatively Speaking Podcast. Good morning. All right, so we're here to talk about some research you're doing that's really exciting, but can you maybe give us kind of a lead in to how you got into cancer research to begin with and what's your passion in that area? Sure, sure. So, uh, it, you know, that happened some time ago during graduate school. You know, I was working on a PhD in biochemistry at the Southwest University of Texas, Southwestern University in Dallas. And I was mainly focused on liver metabolism, but one of the things that happens in the liver is can convert certain compounds or carcinogens to a cancer-causing agent. And so that really started piquing my interest in cancer research uh, from a very early stage. And that just continued to develop through, you know, medical school training and postdoctoral training and all of that. And how, what was your connection to the Charleston area? My wife is uh, originally from South Carolina, and so she, uh, I drug her all over the country to Baltimore, Houston, and, and, uh, and Dallas, and, and Arizona. And finally, on the, this move, uh, she said it was time to come home uh, to take care of her mother. So that really was an attractant. But also, MUIC, I think, was a place we were really excited to join, and it, it's been a great uh, run for us here in, in Charleston. Ray, when you first came, you came in as the Dean of the College of Medicine, um, and then you've since transitioned over to leading the Hollings Cancer Center full-time. Can you talk about a little bit about that transition and what your goals are for Hollings uh, now that you're in the role? Sure. And that was a bit of an unusual transition. Uh, what had happened was during the pandemic, we lost our director of the Cancer Center for you know one reason or another. And uh, you know that uh, caused some concern, especially from somebody who's so interested in cancer. I had sort of been leading the the College of Medicine for six or seven years, and so I did both of these jobs for about a year and a half, and then decided 
that was too much. And uh, uh, I told our senior leaders, I've got to do one or the other just to make sure that I can take care of all the business needed. And so I chose to do the Hollings Cancer Center as we were emerging into a competitive renewal for the CCSG grant. And so we kind of switched um, roles there. Terry Steyer took over as dean of the college. He's doing a fantastic job. And I focused my efforts on Hollings. And we just got through our uh, five-year review, and I think things went really well. We won't get our score for a couple of weeks, but uh, the team pulled together, and we did a fantastic job on that. So one of the things I know MUSC is proud of is that we're the only, um, quote unquote, NCI designated cancer institute in the state, um, but we're moving towards comprehensive status. Mm-hmm. Can you share a little bit about the difference between designation and comprehensive status and, and what we need to do in order to get there? Sure. So <clears throat> the NCI designation uh, is important because it, um, it identifies us as a cancer center who has a fairly large research component, fairly large clinical activity uh, with all of the accoutrements that people expect for a, you know, an academically oriented cancer center. The, the comprehensive de- designation is a step above that, and it requires us having a very large community outreach and engagement effort, which we, we are building, and I think we're going to be in good shape for that. But also, the clinical research arm has to be uh, having uh, some innovative clinical trials underway that are accruing a lot of patients, uh, a larger number than we currently have in our, in our trial portfolio. Uh, and then two or three areas where we're making a national and international impact. Uh, we already have that in tobacco cessation and some of the other areas that we can talk about. but. Clearly, we were just not quite at that level during this previous review, and we have mapped out all of the sort of action items we need to to work on to get to that next higher level. And I think it's totally achievable, very confident that we're going to be able to get there. And I think it's exciting for the people of South Carolina because more areas of international sort of recognition and more clinical trials means more potential cures for the people here that we're serving. So to me, it's really exciting just from a population standpoint as well. Sure. And one action we've already taken was to um, get some uh, philanthropic support to develop our own phase one clinical research unit. Uh, Believe it or not, Hollings has never had one of those before. It's an area of the Hollings where we designate six to eight infusion chairs just for research purposes. And that makes it a lot easier to conduct these trials and get patients enrolled when we know we have a space for them reserved. Uh, to give them these innovative new drugs. I think that's really exciting. Well, cancer is a pretty broad topic, obviously. Um, let's let's pivot into talking about uh, some of the research you're doing mm-hmm. right now. Um, what what's some of the things that's on the front burner for you right now? Well, I've always been interested in how to prevent cancer in the first place, <laughs> and you know there are a lot of things going on that are aimed at doing that. You know, screening, early detection. It's a bunch of new uh, diagnostic uh, blood tests for detecting cancer early. I'm really focused on colorectal cancer, and and that's a really good model for early detection because there are some precancers or premalignant lesions that develop into colorectal cancer. We can detect those easily with endoscopy. Uh, We can study them in the lab and examine what's going on. And many of those precancers don't develop into anything, but there's a a small percentage, probably less than four or 5% 
that do go on to develop into cancer. So our whole role has been to try to understand which ones are going to develop and what we can do to stop those from going on to a cancerous state. I'm a little bit embarrassed to admit that I had to look up what you do in your lab um, <laughs> because for a good number of the faculty that, that we have here, I, I'm familiar with what they study in their labs because I filed patents for them back when I first started here. But I met you when we were both in more administrative mm-hmm. roles. Um, so as I was sort of preparing to do this podcast, I was reading your bio. I knew that you were um, internationally known and um, have, you know, have a, this really illustrious career behind you. But I was like, I wonder what exactly he studies. <laughs> but one of the things I found really fascinating and, and um, very relevant to me, because we have a very high incidence rate of colon cancer mm-hmm. in my family, um, was that you back in the 90s uh, discovered the link of COX-2 mm-hmm. with colon cancer mm-hmm. and the role that anti-inflammatories can play. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I was actually unaware of yeah. that. I think of aspirin for heart disease. Yeah. Um, yeah. I hadn't really thought about it in terms of colon cancer prevention. Yeah, that was surprising. And uh, what happened was we were, right when I moved from Johns Hopkins to Vanderbilt, we were cloning a lot of genes that were turned on in these early adenomas that I discussed. And one of the major ones was this COX-2 gene. And it, it's, a, it's really a, a, a pathway that's involved in inflammation and uh, other areas of medicine, and it was quite surprising to find that it was so highly elevated, especially in these early precancerous lesions. And then about that time, the epidemiologists published a lot of work showing that people who take aspirin and other NSAIDs on a regular basis, more than 16 times a month, uh, have a much lower risk for colorectal cancer. It decreases by about 50 to 60 percent. So we thought the two might be connected, and it turns out that they were. And we just mapped out how, by inhibiting that pathway with those anti-inflammatory drugs, blocks the progression of some of these early cancers. And it's led to some other discoveries for other targets in that pathway that we're also very excited about. It turns out that the lesions that progress are the ones that have aberrations in the immune system and makes the, the, the precancer makes the immune system uh, like uh, like a cloak or cloaking device, it's, it can't be attacked by your own immune system and, and then deleted. So we figured out exactly how that works, and we've come up with a couple of possible ways to target that. We've teamed up with a, a biotech company in San Francisco, and they've developed a new drug that inhibits the pathway with far fewer side effects than some of the other NSAIDs. And they they do work in a preclinical model, and they're now already in phase one trials through the company in San Francisco. So we're excited. There's been some responses in early trials. And you know how drug development works. It's always a few advances and then some retreats and until you get to the right drug and everything. Yeah, but it's exciting that you're pushing the field in, in that direction. Um, and, and maybe that leads to my next question, which is sort of looking on the horizon about um, preventative vaccines, mm-hmm. and, and do you think that we're marching towards that? Do you think it's going to be feasible? That's a great question, uh, Jesse, because uh, there is a lab at University of Washington in Seattle, and uh, Dr. Dissus is the head of the vaccine center there, and she and I worked together uh, on a committee at the NCI, so we got to know about one another's work, and she has developed a vaccine for COX-2 and administered it to these uh, preclinical models and, and mice, mouse models and other preclinical models. It really 
prevents the precancers from developing pretty significantly, even better than the NSAIDs do, probably because it sort of blocks the whole pathway just with the vaccine. The, I think the next step in that is to see if there's any side effects of doing that or any anything that, you know, would be preventing that from being used in humans. But she's sort of marching forward using the vaccine approach. That's really exciting. And that pathway, you know, as we discussed, is um, has a role in colon cancer. Does it have a role in other cancers that are harder to detect by, by screening? It does have a, a, in gastric and esophageal. So it it's really seems to be focused on the GI tract. There's some data in breast, but it hasn't been developed as well as the GI uh, studies. So, you know, I think that what I hope can develop here, and we're, we're doing a bunch of single cell sequencing on these lesions at different uh, levels of progression, we can come up with a sort of class of targets that uh, if we combine efforts on those could, could be more effective and, and blocking that development of a precancer into a cancerous lesion. And that's created this whole new field of cancer interception that people are talking about. If we can intercept the process in a way that, you know, it's not too damaging to the person, but also prevents them from getting the disease, that would be the probably the best way to deal with some of these. It's really exciting what's out on the horizon. And um, I think when you look at the sort of expansion of the data and the single cell sequencing, um, the NIH's push to uh, make data more open mm -hmm. and accessible between sites. Um, it, it leads me to, you know, sort of the next question, which is always a hot topic, which is the role of artificial intelligence mm -hmm. in this, because it is a vast quantity of data that, that we're generating as a scientific body. And um, do you think that artificial intelligence can help to sort of comb through the data and, and help us make more progress more quickly? Uh, definitely. I think that is probably one of the most acceptable and best roles for AI because it, you know, it can really, in a comprehensive way, tell differences in patterns and other things that could really tease out what the best targets are. It's also being used to design drugs, you know, based on protein structures and other things and get that initial sort of uh, uh, in silico look at, you know, what drugs might be effective. It, it, you know, just from a clinical perspective, it already is helping with uh, x-ray studies to tell the, if there's an abnormal thing or, or if it's normal because the radiologists have to read so many of those so quickly, sometimes they miss some details. Uh, it doesn't miss any details. So uh, it's really good for that. I think it'll be good for pathology as well, eventually, once all the paradigms and algorithms are set for that. So it's very exciting in, in healthcare and medicine for AI. Uh, there's a lot of concerns about other ethical and moral issues where it might take over the world or something. But certainly for now, we're using it in our research and uh, in clinical practice as well. Can you talk a little bit about the prevention side of things? Espe especially when I was doing some research, I was really interested in the in inflammation mm -hmm. connection. Can you talk a little bit about that? Maybe give a lay person a little bit of information on sure. how that works? Yeah, you know, w what, what most people are uh, familiar with is when you have a wound or a cut in your skin or some sort of trauma, uh, initially you get a lot of inflammatory response to that. The body's trying to keep out all the viruses and bacteria, but trying to heal the, the damage to the tissue. And, and that's all a, a really good process because it usually goes up and then comes back down and resolves, you know, as things get better. 
In cancer, it turns out that you know areas of the body that have what we call chronic inflammation, or so the inflammation never sort of gets turned off, is a bad thing because it can damage DNA that can lead to cancer. It can uh, set up a situation that sort of is a, what we call a wound that never heals. So it's just a constant process. And there are ways we can modulate that with uh, new sort of immunotherapy treatments. Uh, the checkpoint inhibitors are a good example of, you know, these checkpoints are important so that, you know, the immune system doesn't overdo it or, you know, cause damage to tissue. And the, the cancer uses those to evade the immune system and grow unchecked without, you know, being attacked by the cytotoxic T cells or macrophages or other immune cells that are present. So. Um, and one thing we have learned is that people who have uh, obesity or high body mass index, uh, they have a chronic inflammation in their body. If you measure in the bloodstream or other tissues, they just have all of these chronic Im uh, Im inflammatory mediators, and their risk for cancer goes up pretty dramatically for a number of cancers, and it's probably related to that chronic inflammation. Um, so. There are ways to modulate that with exercise and diet and, you know, avoidance of uh, toxins and carcinogens. But, you know, we're, we're also interested in a deep molecular understanding of how we can stop those uh, processes from developing. Well, Hollings Cancer Center has seen a lot of growth over the last 30 years, including now specialists from all over the country. Is that helping grow uh, more diverse and innovative ideas for you guys? Yes, we you know we have been recruiting a lot of people from all over the country and the world to come to Hollings, and just since I started you know about three years ago, we've recruited about thirty five new faculty, uh, including research scientists and clinicians, and we plan on recruiting another fifty over the next five years. And we're just not doing this to get bigger. We you know where there are certain areas we want to cover, but. For example, we recruited uh, immuno-oncologists um, from the University of California, San Francisco, Leo Ferreira. Leo is trying to reprogram T regulatory cells to attack tumors, and uh, he's making some progress. We, we really never thought of that doing that here with the people that we had. Uh, you know, he trained with a prominent immunologist there. And, Sort of those ideas came out of his, his postdoctoral work. And uh, he's already gotten lots of funding from the outside. He's really energized uh, that whole idea and concept. And I think having somebody like that from across the country uh, come in, you know, it's, uh, it's very energizing. And he's certainly uh, doing a great job. Uh, we've recruited um, a CAR T cell engineer from Vanderbilt University. He's trying to engineer immune cells to attack tumors more effectively. Uh, we've basically, uh, many of this, the larger medical institutions we've been able to recruit from, I think Charleston is a delightful place to live and people, uh, you don't have to twist their arm too hard to come here, especially earlier on in their career when they're a little bit easier to recruit. I agree. Um, you know, we mentioned that um, it, clinical trial enrollment will need to increase for comprehensive status as well as really uh, demonstrating uh, expertise in a few uh, key areas, mm -hmm. uh, tobacco cessation being one where we're already really strong in. Um, can you speak a little bit about your uh, where you see us going with, with these, some of the other areas and where we're really going to double down? Sure. So we, we have already sort of applied to the FDA for approval for use of our own CAR T cells that we generate here. 
And uh, we're in the final, final glide path for that. As you know, there's always a few little hitches in getting that FDA approval. And in one of the cytokines we use to culture the cells, they were worried that it might have a, a, a toxin in it. But we've done all the studies and shown that it was pure and, and worked well. And so I think that'll come really soon, in, any week now. Um, we want to continue to create those here because if you buy them commercially, the cost is around $500,000 a treatment for an individual. And we can generate those for about $25,000. So uh, <clears throat> it would save the state a lot of money and enabled us to treat more South Carolinians who couldn't naturally afford you know, that level of cost to, to get a CAR T cell therapy. So we're going to push that as hard as we can and also create our own new CAR T cells here that we can use uh, that might be more experimental, but eventually be something that we could use for patients with different kinds of cancer. Um, we're, we're, we have, a, as you know, a drug development program, and Nate's done a great job of sort of guiding us. I think we would, we would like to develop that a little bit more and generate uh, some expertise in screening libraries and things like that on the early end of things where we could have our own sort of homegrown compounds or things that we patent right here and, and belong to MUSC. Uh, we're, we're in meetings now talking about how to best do that, whether we collaborate with somebody else who's already got it going or try to develop some more of that in-house. Yeah, and I think that's exciting. And Nate is Nate Joloff, who's been a guest um, on this podcast previously. Um, and, and I think it is exciting. You know, we were fortunate as an institution to have a, a compound library donated right. to us, um, two actually, one from uh, a faculty member who had his own proprietary library and he gave it to us as he retired. And one that came from an industry partner who right. was um, sunsetting its own internal R&D work and, and gave us their compound library. Um, but it never seems like we've had enough robust sort of boots on the ground people to really maximize the 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 work that's being done in those spaces. So it is exciting and, and collaboration is always good if, you know, depending on, because drug discovery can be pretty expensive. So <laughs> it is, it is. Um, so coming up with some good partners. Yeah. I, you know, I think um, that those compounds have been very helpful, certainly in developing leads that look quite exciting. Uh, Dr. Howe has developed a new uh, drug against this E3 ubiquitin ligase and uh, uh, triple negative breast cancer that looks very interesting. And he's getting into the SB, SBR, SDTR phase of that. And so we're very excited that he's been able to take it that far and uh, see if it's going to work uh, in, in humans eventually. So as you mentioned, so Nate has his own company and, mm -hmm. and, and how does as well. Um, where do you see for, for Hollings the role of entrepreneurship and innovation within what you're hoping for from faculty development for those in your group? Well, that's another, um, that's a very good question, Jesse. I mean, it's also important for us to show that some of our science uh, works out so well that we can take it into clinical use. And so, and you can't do that without entrepreneurship, as you know. There's always this valley of death where you do the basic uh, study, you find that there's a pathway and a mechanism to inhibit it. But if you can't get it to an actual drug that you can give to a patient, 
then you know you can't really show that you're making the best use of your science. And so for comprehensiveness, they usually look for a few examples of that. And we have a few, and you know we want to have more uh, to show that we can not only do the basic work, but we can get it across the finish line. And uh, that's very important for an academic medical institution and the Hollings Cancer Center. I agree, and you've always been a great partner in terms of pushing those initiatives ahead. By the way, well, let's uh, let's look to the future now. Let's let's talk about maybe what you're what you're seeing coming down the down the pipeline here in the next I don't know five ten years. What, what what are you getting excited about? Well, you know, this immunotherapy is really taking off, and and like you mentioned earlier, uh, people are de- developing vaccines not only for prevention. There, you know, clearly we know if we give vaccines for cancer-causing viruses or other things prevents those people from getting cervical and head and neck cancer through the HPV vaccine. But now there are vaccines being developed for pancreatic cancer and other types of cancers. Uh, And a study was just published not too long ago showing there's a pancreas cancer vaccine developed at Memorial Sloan Kettering using the mRNA technology uh, that did have an impact on uh, response rates of individuals to treatment. So I think that to me is very exciting and, and may set up the idea that for certain cancers, we may even be able to just take a vaccine and prevent it from happening as well, like the COX-2 vaccine that I discussed it, that's in preclinical trials. We did just recruit a new um, person, uh, Bill Hawkins from uh, you know Washington University in St. Louis, and he has got three or four studies underway right now on pancreas cancer vaccines. So he'll bring those here to Hollings and we'll start doing those studies here. That'll increase our clinical trial accrual, but also serve the people in our state. If this does work out, we'll have that treatment available right here in Charleston. Ray, obviously running a cancer center is probably a very costly endeavor. Um, and I know we get funding from the federal government through research grants and, and there's some, um, you know, care related um, payments that we get from the treatment of patients. But how else do you help support financially the growth of your center? Well, we've been extremely lucky in just, you know, the last few years where the state of South Carolina has a, a, a legislated funding from the state budget uh, in the amount of around $10 million extra dollars per year. And that's really uh, helped us in some of our uh, developing some technology, recruiting individuals, and beefing up our clinical trials office that is setting us up to get the comprehensive status. So I have to thank the South Carolina State Legislature. They've really come to the uh, rescue there. And this is an annual amount, so it keeps coming every year. Uh, And I think it will enable us to be in a position to compete very effectively for comprehensive status that we've never had in the past. So that support, I have to thank the state and thank all those legislators that worked hard to get that bill passed and get that through the state state house. It's it's just been a lifesaver. Sound like government working the way (laughs) it's supposed to work. Yeah. (laughs) And well, we do treat a lot of family members and others related to people all over the state. So I think they see it as a resource. And we are expanding our reach to the regional health care centers in Florence and Columbia and in the upstate uh, eventually. And so that really helps us. It puts us in a position where we can offer treatment for people closer to where they live at home so they don't have to drive all the way here. And, and you know, we have problems with parking and other things. So uh, they can avoid that and get their treatment efficiently, effectively, and then just stay close to home where their social support networks are. 
I think that's really exciting and really meaningful. And I agree, it's wonderful that the state has uh, given so much support to not only Hollings, but to the people yeah. of the, the state of South Carolina in terms of advancing their own care. Agree. One of the other ways that Hollings uh, in recent years has been um, fortunate to get support is one of my favorite fundraising activities in terms of the Lovello um, bike ride. Can you describe for the audience what Lovello is, um, what it aims to do, and how, how we participate? Sure. I think Lovello was started about, well, before the pandemic, actually. And, I, you know, we did run into issues during the pandemic because those kinds of things just weren't possible. But we've rebounded, and uh, there's a lot of interest in and riding in the, it's it's called low velo for you know low country bike ride basically, and uh, it's raises money that we use at the cancer center to support pilot and seed funding projects that aren't quite ready to be funded by the NCI or the federal agencies. The CAR T cell project is one we started off funding with Lavello funds. We do support our trainees, our postdocs, and students with it as well. Uh, we have an annual Lovello Symposium, and we've been lucky in the last three years, we're going to have two Nobel laureates that come uh, and talk to our students and, and, and trainees about their, you know, how they were successful and try to teach people the right path to, to go on that. So uh, we're getting uh, locals and statewide individuals to uh, sign up for the ride. That money raised is, like I said, is uh, manna from heaven. Uh, George Hincappy, who uh, was a Tour de France rider and Olympic uh, bicycler, has been very supportive. And Mr. Ben Navarro has really helped get this bike race off the ground and uh, bike ride. And we've expanded it, and uh, we're really excited about the one coming up in November. Um, most of the courses will go over the Ravenel Bridge, which is an exciting, breathtaking view, uh, and then end up on the Isle of Palms where we'll have a celebration and uh really celebrate the the whole process. I have ridden in it every year since it started. Um, it's one of my favorite activities for the year. It actually is what got me to ride a longer distance. I had done a triathlon and then decided to do the 50 the first year. Um, and I know you ride a lot as well as a cyclist, but um, one of the things I like when I get there and sort of see the other bike riders is that it, they span decades of ages, de uh, a huge sort of... Um, variety of athletic ability. You mm -hmm. have uh, cancer survivors and um, children, and, and some people are there on their beach cruisers. Mm -hmm. You know, you know, up to and including uh, individuals like Mr. Hinkapi, yeah, yeah. um, <laughs> who who comes, you know, and, and clearly is um, going to lead the charge on the hundred mile. Um, <laughs> um, but I think it's just a, a really wonderful way to sort of see the mix of individuals and everyone being there to celebrate and advance it together. Yeah, it's it's a tremendous event. I think one of the things we did actually was to open up a 10-mile ride, island ride, where you could use your beach cruiser to have your kids go along and uh, allow more people to participate that weren't quite in the tip-top you know, triathlon shape because they've been having cancer therapy or uh, other issues, aging and other things. So, you know, it, it has expanded to a much larger group and it is really uh, a fun event but also inspiring to see all these people out there doing what they can to help support cancer research. Well, I'm excited to ride again this year, and I'm hoping for good weather. <laughs> it's, it's more fun when it's not um, raining hard on you, <laughs> although that was fun too. <laughs> well, it sounds like there's a lot of energy building behind 
this push that you guys are, are making right now. So we're excited about that. And we're very thankful that you're a part of this organization. And we're thankful that you were a part of this uh, podcast today. So Dr. Du Bois, we, we appreciate you very much. And we look forward to talk to you again in the future. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. You've been listening to the Innovatively Speaking Podcast with the Medical University of South Carolina. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to support the show, leave a rating and review. To hear more innovative ideas and to share your own, subscribe to the show or visit us on our webpage, web.musc.edu slash innovation. And remember, don't hesitate to innovate.